At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and is written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. And welcome to Los Angeles, the fabled city of angels. Home to palm trees, movie stars, Disneyland, and the American dream we know as Hollywood. It's a place of shadows and sunlight, myth and murder, and it's the historical home to more cranks, nutcases, killers, and lunatics than you'll find just about anywhere else in the country. In season five, we're taking a long, hard look at the history, mystery, spirits, scandals, and sins of Hollywood, that glamorous bit of Los Angeles that's not so much a place these days, but a state of mind. Each new episode will reveal another sordid Hollywood tale of crime, corruption, murder, and of course, ghosts. And they won't be for the faint of heart. If you want to experience our entire season, we suggest you go back to episode 70, which served as our introduction to the history and hauntings of Hollywood. For tonight, though, dim the lights, make yourself a highball, pop some popcorn, and get ready for a new episode of American Hauntings. Hollywood. It's a name that guaranteed readers for any newspaper story that was published anywhere in the country in the early 1900s. And in a few short years, it wasn't just the name Hollywood that sparked interest for the public. It was the names of the people who put the place on the map. Names like Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, Theda Berra, and the Gish sisters, Dorothy and Lillian. They helped to make Hollywood seem larger than life and turned a dusty little ranch town into one of the most famous places on earth. But what makes Hollywood, Hollywood? Well, the movies, of course, and the movie stars. But behind the facade, where the sausage is made, so to speak, are the studios where the magic happens. The Hollywood movie colony came into existence thanks to a group of East Coast filmmakers and businessmen who saw a good thing in the Nickelodeons that were springing up all over America. They were lured to the West Coast by the promise of Southern California sunshine, by low-cost land, and of course by the opportunity to elude the process servers of Thomas Edison. Well, they settled in Hollywood and began building open-air stages and makeshift studios. These early movie makers began cranking out primitive one- and two-reelers, short films like those starring the Keystone Cops and others, and they captivated the hearts and imaginations of the American public. For more than a century now, the movie studios of Hollywood have entranced, mystified, and entertained us with their visions of life. Sometimes real, sometimes tragic, and always spectacular. American motion pictures have enthralled generations of moviegoers. Some of the most popular films to be released have been those dealing with the dark side, ghosts, monsters, and the supernatural. Not surprisingly, many of the movie studios where such films have been made, well, they have their own tales of ghosts and hauntings. 
And if there's a single movie studio that I can blame for my love of the movies, it's Universal. It was home to all the classic monster movies that I loved so much as a kid. Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Wolfman, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, I still love those movies today. Well, Universal was founded by a Jewish immigrant named Carl Limley as Yankee Film Company in 1909. He was one of the daring entrepreneurs who dared to go up against Thomas Edison. Well, Edison never gave credit to the actors in his films, but Limley changed all that by promoting Florence Lawrence, who was then only known as the Biograph Girl. You guys are going to have to look some of this stuff up, I have a feeling, but Google it, you'll find her. Lindley's studio became the first to use the name of the film Star in its marketing. In 1912, Lindley merged eight little studios into one and started calling it Universal. And just as important, he moved to Hollywood. Three years later, he opened the world's largest motion picture studio on what had been a 230-acre farm. He made extra cash by opening it up to tourists, and sometimes... He needed that extra cash. You see, Carl financed all his own films, refusing to take on debt. Well, this policy nearly bankrupted the studio several times when directors insisted on excessive and over-the-top productions, but Universal managed to get most of its money back by launching sensational ad campaigns that brought huge crowds into the theaters. Well, in 1928, Lindley made his son Carl Jr. head of Universal Pictures as his 21st birthday present. Really, this isn't a surprise since at that time there were already 70 of Carl's relatives on the payroll. Well, to his credit though, the younger Limley persuaded his father to bring Universal up to date. He bought and built theaters, converted the studio to sound, and began making high quality productions, many of them which became Oscar winners. Well, it was Carl Jr. that created the studio's most successful niche of horror movies with Dracula, Frankenstein, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, and others. During the years of the Depression, the monsters ruled the screen, but so did movies in general. Broke Americans couldn't spare the money needed to attend stage plays at the time, but a dime or nickel for a movie? Well, anybody could afford that. Eventually, though, by the late 1930s, the Lindleys were in trouble and lost the studio they'd created. The new studio heads instituted several severe cuts in production budgets, and by the start of World War II, the company was concentrating on smaller budget productions, westerns, melodramas, serials, and sequels to the studio's horror classics. Since Universal couldn't afford its own stable of stars, the company often borrowed talent from other studios or hired freelance actors. Jimmy Stewart, Marlena Dietrich, and Ben Crosby were some of the major names who made pictures for Universal during this period. They also pulled in actors who were known only for radio and made them into movie stars like W.C. Fields and Abbott and Costello. You hook those two up with Universal Monsters, surefire hit. Universal stuck with low-budget comedies, musicals and adventures, westerns and serials, making gangster pictures, monster movies, and Sherlock Holmes mysteries for years. It was eventually taken over by MCA in the 1960s, expanded into television, studio tours, and amusement parks, and today is owned by NBC, and has deals to distribute films for well-known companies like Imagine, Emblem Entertainment, Morgan Creek Productions, and many others. And thanks to this, Universal remains a powerful and integral part of Hollywood, carrying on a legacy that dates all the way back to the beginnings of the film colony. Well, the hauntings that have been reported at Universal Studios have their roots not surprisingly, in the horror films that were such an important part of its early days, and mostly with one man, Lon Chaney. 
Called the man of a thousand faces, he was one of the most popular actors of the silent era. Born to deaf parents, he adapted easily to the expressive type of acting needed in silent films. But it wasn't just his acting that made Cheney famous. It was his talent as a master of makeup and his willingness to endure hours of pain to make a role seem real. He would do whatever it took for a part inserting wires in his face, wearing fake teeth that made his mouth bleed, tying body parts in painful positions to portray an amputee, and even learning to paint, drink, and play cards with his feet when he played a man with no arms. There was no one quite like him. He started his career on the vaudeville stage in 1902. Three years later, he met and married a singer named Cleva Creighton, and a year later, their first and only son, Creighton Chaney, who would become an actor in his own right using the name Lon Chaney Jr., the Wolfman, was born. The Cheney family continued touring with vaudeville shows, but in 1910, they settled in Southern California. Unfortunately, marital troubles developed between the Cheneys, and in April 1913, Cleva went to the Majestic Theater in downtown LA where Lon was working and tried, very dramatically, to commit suicide on stage. Well, the suicide attempt failed, but it did ruin her career. Divorce and scandal followed, forcing Cheney out of vaudeville and into the up-and-coming film business. Well, Cheney went to work for Universal Studios, doing bit and character parts. His outstanding skill with makeup gained the attention of directors and led to many roles he might not have gotten otherwise. While working at Universal, he became friends with the husband and wife director team of Joe DeGrasse and Ida Mae Park, who offered him substantial roles in their films and encouraged him to play macabre characters. Well, during this time, Cheney married a chorus girl named Hazel Hastings. Their marriage was a happy one, and the new couple soon gained custody of Cheney's 10-year-old son, Creighton, who'd been living in various homes and boarding schools since his parents' divorce. Well, Cheney continued to make small gains in his quest to be recognized as a prominent actor. Eventually, his skill with makeup and his taste for macabre roles showed off his skills and as an actor and a master of makeup. Cheney is still remembered as a silent film pioneer. In a film called The Penalty, he played an amputee gangster. He played the Hunchback of Notre Dame and, of course, The Phantom of the Opera. He appeared in a total of 10 films for director Todd Browning, often playing bizarre or mutilated characters, including the carnival knife thrower Alonzo the Armless in The Unknown with Joan Crawford. In 1927, Cheney starred in the horror film London After Midnight, which is quite possibly the most famous lost film ever. His last film was a talky remake of his silent classic, The Unholy Three. This was the only film in which he also displayed his versatile voice. In fact, Cheney had to sign a sworn statement declaring that five of the key voices in the film, the ventriloquist, his dummy, an old woman, a parrot, and a girl, were in fact his own voice. Well, Cheney was a beloved figure in early Hollywood. He and Hazel led a discreet private life, distant from the Hollywood social scene, although he was quick to make friends and was respected by other actors and crew members alike. He earned the respect and admiration of up-and-coming actors by helping them out, showing them the ropes, and by always being willing to talk to the cast and crew about his experiences between takes. Cheney's role as a tough Marine drill instructor in Tell It to the Marines, one of his favorite films, earned him the affection of the U.S. Marine Corps, who made him its first honorary member from the motion picture industry. During the filming of a movie called Thunder in the winter of 1929, Cheney developed pneumonia and a short time later was diagnosed with lung cancer. Despite aggressive treatment, his condition gradually worsened and seven weeks after the release of the remake of The Unholy Three, 
Cheney died. His death was deeply mourned by his family, the film industry, and by his fans. The U.S. Marine Corps provided a chaplain and an honor guard for his funeral. He was interred at Forest Lawn Cemetery and fellow actor Wallace Beery flew his plane over the funeral and dropped floral wreaths. It was a sad and tragic ending for an actor of such immense talent, but well, it seems we've not heard the last of the Man of a Thousand Faces. For many years, Cheney's ghost was often seen on stage 28 at Universal, the set for the Opera House in Phantom of the Opera. Released in 1925, this film became Cheney's most famous role, and it became a fixture on the Universal lot. Well, some believe that Lon Cheney became a permanent fixture too. Visitors to Stage 28, along with employees who worked there, maintained that it was haunted. For years, there were sightings by electricians, designers, carpenters, art directors, and security guards of a man in a black cape. Those who got more than just a glimpse of him said the cloaked man was Lon Chaney himself. In addition to studio employees, many visitors who didn't know the history of Stage 28 reported the man in the black cape. He was often seen running on the catwalks overhead. Even security guards who might have laughed off the idea of a resident ghost admitted to being spooked by lights that turned on and off by themselves and by doors that opened and closed on the empty stage at night. In 2014, the Phantom of the Opera set was dismantled and moved to a new location to open Stage 28 up for more filming. And the man in the black cape came along with it. It seems Lon Chaney is still doing exactly what he loved on the other side. Culver Studios is one of the most historic lots in Hollywood. It was where films like Gone with the Wind and Citizen Kane were filmed and has been home to names like RKO and Howard Hughes and where TV shows like The Andy Griffith Show, Lassie, and Batman were made. Culver Studios was started in 1918 by pioneer Hollywood filmmaker Thomas Ince, a man considered to be the father of the Western and the man who introduced the world to Mary Pickford by making her America's sweetheart. Ince rose from a $15 a week actor to become the head of a studio. In 1915, Ince partnered with W.D. Griffith and Max Sennett to create the Triangle Motion Picture Company in Culver City. Somewhere along the way, though, the deal went sour and Ince sold out and entered into a lease with Harry Culver for a new 14-acre studio, which still stands today. Ince, a visionary in the industry, promoted the glamour of movie making, and he entertained the king and queen of Belgium and even President Woodrow Wilson at the studios. Unfortunately, though, it wasn't meant to last, and neither was Ince's revered status. Sadly, Ince is remembered much more today for his scandalous death than for his contribution to the art of movie making. Ince died in November 1924 while celebrating his birthday on board a yacht owned by newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was the greatest newspaper baron in American history and one of the most feared men in the country, thanks to the headlines that he controlled. In the 1920s, Hearst also began investing in films, but his passion for the movies was really just a way to further the career of his mistress, a sweet but untalented film actress named Marion Davies. 
Hearst brought stock in MGM and created Cosmopolitan Productions, a company that specifically produced Marion's films. His newspapers and magazines proclaimed her to be, quote, a miracle of the movies, and he did everything he could to entrench her in the Hollywood film colony by throwing huge parties and inviting all the stars. On the night of Saturday, November 15, 1924, Hearst threw a huge party on his yacht with a guest list that included Thomas Entz, who was celebrating his 43rd birthday that night and was also in negotiations with Hearst about using Culver Studios as a base for his production company. But at some point that night, the otherwise healthy Entz died of heart failure. The thing was, though, his body wasn't found on the yacht. It was discovered in his Benedict Canyon home. Well, ugly rumors circulated that Entz had become sick on the yacht after eating and drinking too much and was taken home. But others claimed he died on the boat and his body was then taken home. Well, strangely, none of the famous guests for the party were called to testify in a coroner's hearing after a, quote, official version of events was printed in Hearst newspapers. After the hearing ended, the case was closed. But Hollywood rumor claimed that Entz had not only died on the yacht, but had been killed there by mistake. Another guest at the party that night was an actor and friend of Thomas Entz, Charlie Chaplin, who, rumor had it, had been having an affair with Marion Davies. The story went that Charlie and Marion slipped off together, and after a loud altercation, Hearst pulled out a revolver and tried to shoot Chaplin, but he missed, and he hit Thomas Entz instead. Hearst covered the whole thing up with his massive wealth and swore everyone on the yacht to secrecy. In spite of this, there were still rumors, though, and many people jokingly called his yacht William Randolph's hearse for many years afterward. Entz's funeral was held on November 21st, attended by his family, Marion Davies, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and Harold Lloyd. Hearst was noticeably absent. The body was immediately cremated and an official inquest was never held. Marion and Hearst managed to ride out the scandal mostly unscathed, but as director D.W. Griffith later remarked, quote, all you had to do to make Hearst turn white as a ghost is mention Ince's name. There's plenty wrong there, but Hearst is just too big to touch. Well, in the years that followed, Hearst discreetly provided for Ince's widow, Nell, with a trust fund. Unfortunately, it was later wiped out by the Depression. Ince's mysterious death did not bring an end to his connection to his studio, though. Rumors spread that Culver Studios was haunted, even though it had changed hands many times after Ince's death. Cecil B. DeMille, Howard Hughes, David Selznick, Desi Arnaz, and Lucille Ball all made significant contributions to film and television history on this lot. And apparently, Thomas Entz watches over it all. Witnesses have reported seeing the ghost of a man climbing the stairs in the main administration building, headed for the executive screening room. This had been Entz's private projection room during his tenure at the studio. Remodeling seemed to bring out the worst in Entz's ghost in 1988, when he began to reveal his displeasure over some major renovations. The first to encounter him were two workmen who looked up to see a man in an odd bowler-type hat watching them from the catwalks above stages one, two, three. When they spoke to him, he frowned and then turned and walked away into the second floor wall. 
Later that summer, special effects man Eugene Helchi spoke to another worker who'd also seen a man wearing an odd hat, this time on stages two, three, four. Hilchi was convinced the man's description matched that of Ince. But it was what the ghost said to the workmen that really sealed the deal. The mysterious man turned to look at them and said, quote, I don't like what you're doing to my studio. Then he vanished into the wall. Even after the renovations, much of Ince's original studio remains as it was. And today, the old Culver Studios lot is one of the busiest in town. And hopefully, the ghost of Thomas Ince is at least happy about that. Perhaps the most haunted of all the Hollywood studios is Paramount. Over the years, the ghostly sightings and strange reports have become as much a part of the legend of the place as the movies themselves. Being the last major studio to actually be located in Hollywood, Paramount makes the perfect setting for ghostly activity. It's located right next door to Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is no stranger to ghost stories itself, serving as the final resting place for stars like Rudolph Valentino, Douglas Fairbanks, and scores of others. In fact, many of the stars who worked for Paramount are buried in the cemetery, and the stories say that some of their spirits are still seen walking through the studio gates, or, well, simply passing directly through the walls from one lot to the next. Apparently, when you love something as much as these former actors love their work, it's hard to separate yourself from it. Even death is not powerful enough to keep you away. While Paramount Pictures can trace its beginnings to the creation of the famous Players Film Company in May 1912, a founder Hungarian-born Adolf Zucker, who had been an early investor in Nickelodeon's, put together a company that planned to offer films that were aimed at the middle class, starring the leading theatrical players of the day. He eventually turned that into Paramount Studios. From the very beginning, Zucker believed that having famous actors in his films was the key to success. With this in mind, he signed and developed many of the leading early stars, among them Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Gloria Swanson, Valentino, and Wallace Reed. Eventually, Zucker bought out most of his early partners, driving away the last of them during the Depression, when the studio nearly went bankrupt. Zucker reorganized the company, though, and managed to save it. As always, Paramount continued to place importance on its stars. By the 1930s, Talking Pictures introduced a wide range of powerful new actors like Marlena Dietrich, Mae West, Gary Cooper, Claudette Colbert, the Marx Brothers, Dorothy L'Amour, Carol Lombard, Bing Crosby, and others. During this period, Paramount was literally a movie factory, churning out 60 to 70 movies a year. In 1933, Mae West would also add greatly to Paramount's success with her movies, She Done Him Wrong and I'm No Angel. However, Mae's sex appeal in these movies would also lead to the enforcement of the production code, as the newly formed organization called the Catholic League of Decency threatened to boycott if the code wasn't obeyed. During World War II, Paramount cut back to a more modest 20 films a year. Still, with more new stars like Bob Hope, Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake, 
Paulette Goddard and Betty Hutton, and wartime theater attendance at record numbers. The studio theater combination made more money than ever. The 1950s through the 1970s were often rough times for Paramount, although the studio saw great success during a period when Robert Evans, who was then a virtually unknown producer, was installed as head of production. He restored Paramount's reputation for commercial success with films like Love Story, Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby, and The Godfather. Films like Saturday Night Fever and Grease carried the studio into the 1980s when it saw successful productions like Footloose, Fatal Attraction, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the Star Trek series on both film and television. Even after many changes in studio heads over the last century, Paramount remains one of the most successful and longest-running American movie studios. But no matter how many actors have worked at Paramount over the decades, many believe that the source of the hauntings at the studio is connected to the cemetery that lies just outside of Paramount's borders. Hollywood Forever Cemetery has been around even longer than Paramount Studios. It was founded as Hollywood Memorial Park in 1899 and works hard to publicize its celebrity occupants, which include a very long list, but here's just some of them. Rudy Valentino, Douglas Fairbanks, Peter Lorre, Tyrone Power, Clifton Webb, Mel Blanc, William Desmond Taylor, Marion Davies, Cecil B. DeMille, John Huston, Faye Ray, Don Adams, Darren McGavin, Mama Cass Elliot, Jane Mansfield, Mala Numi, who played Vampira, two of the Ramones, Chris Cornell, and many others. It is the place to go to find celebrity graves, and the cemetery even offers events, concerts, and movie screenings. The connection between Hollywood Forever Cemetery and Paramount Studios begins with a common wall that separates the two properties. It continues with hauntings carried out by many former Paramount actors who are now resting, apparently uneasily, in the graveyard next door. The cemetery is located closest to stages 29 through 32. The reports of spirits seen entering the studio lot describe them as wearing clothing from the 1930s and 40s. Out of all the sound stages in that area, stages 31 and 32 seem to have the most activity. Footsteps are often heard after the stages have been secured for the night, and it's not uncommon for equipment to turn on and off and to operate by itself. Okay, one thing that I want to clearly establish is that it is well known that the stage doors here make a very loud sound when they are opened or shut. There's simply no way to muffle a door that closes on these stages. When someone enters or leaves, it's plainly heard. Anyway, there's a story that tells of three guards who secured stage 32 for the night. One of the men had gone outside and he closed and locked the door behind him. The remaining two guards looked around the place, making sure everything was in order, and then heard someone walking behind them in the stage flats. They walked over, looked behind a partition, but there was no one there. Moments later, they heard the stage door being opened. Puzzled, but convinced it was the third guard, they secured the rest of the stage and then left to find the third member of their team sitting outside. He hadn't entered the soundstage at all. Well, another guard had a more frightening experience on that same stage. He was working by himself to secure stage 32 for the night. Shortly after finishing his rounds, he turned the lights out and then left to go check in and make a telephone call to his girlfriend. Just as he was leaving, he heard someone walking across the stage. Well, he wondered how they could see anything because the stage was very dark and filled with props and scenery for the next day's filming. He knew it was difficult to move around even when the lights were on. Somehow, though, the footsteps continued, crossing the darkened stage 
unobstructed. The startled guard turned on his flashlight and checked out the sound, but saw no one. The door had never opened, but there was no one in the building. After that, he never closed down that stage by himself again. Paramount Studios has many entrances, and some of them are walk-in gates, like the one at Lemon Grove Avenue, located a few feet from the cemetery. It's there where many of the ghosts from the graveyard are also said to enter the studio lot. One of them is the ghost of silent film heartthrob Rudolph Valentino, the most traveled ghost in Hollywood, but we'll be featuring him in a future episode. But in addition to Valentino, other ghosts from the cemetery sometimes appear at the Paramount gates, a fact that does not please security guards, especially those who work the night shift at the Lemon Grove gate. But these sightings are mostly harmless, leaving the officers confused over where the trespasser disappeared to. Other times, the sightings can leave a few rattled nerves. One night, a veteran security guard was working a late shift. Most of the guards know everyone who comes in and out of the gates because, well, they see them every day. But on this evening, the guard noticed an unfamiliar person lurking about. He followed the man to a corner of the wall by the cemetery and thinking he had him trapped in there, waited for the suspicious visitor to come out. Well, after a minute or two, he finally looked around the corner just in time to see the man vanish right into the cemetery wall. And from that time on, he refused to work the Lemon Grove Gate by himself at night. Of all the hauntings at Paramount, however, the most active one has nothing to do with the cemetery. The Hart Building is considered to be the most haunted site on the studio lot. But who haunts it? Well, that remains a question. It's one of the oldest buildings there and was once part of Desi Lu Studios, owned by Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. They say that the spirit of a woman haunts the upper floors, and one of the things that witnesses notice about her is that she gives off the strong smell of an old flowery-like perfume. She tends to be seen mostly by men, and stories have circulated she often takes things and throws them on the floor. One story is also circulated about a security guard who was working in the Hart Building one night. He was checking the place to be sure that all the windows and doors were locked when suddenly one of the doors slammed shut on its own. Strangely, the door is on a suspension hinge that only allows it to shut very slowly. Instead, it had slammed shut, as though someone were violently pushing against it. There have also been stories about windows and doors that have unlocked on their own, lights turning on and off, and claims of people being touched or tapped on the shoulder, too. Everyone who has worked there can vouch for it being a very spooky place. And like stagehands, security guards who work at various gates and stages throughout the studio, most of them don't like to work in the Hart Building after dark. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
so there's a lot of that. You just just wait. So. <laughs> It's not that many. There's just a few. Uh -huh. Because once I caught on to it, then I started doing it more. But I didn't think of it right away. So <laughs> I'm saving it for this. Perfect. So. Are you ready? Yes. Are you going to yell again? Yes. No. Yes. Maybe. We'll see. All right. Everybody sneezed and silenced your phones and whatever else you got to do. Sure. Dope. Okay. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast. I'm going to leave that okay the in there. Show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season five of the podcast Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. I guess I should be careful with doing that kind of thing to you because you have all of my outtakes. That's true. I just realized that. I do. So I do I've need to be a little bit more careful with that. Hundreds so. of hours yes, of outtakes. Yes, you do, of me you know, messing things up and swearing about it. So, And you come up with some really creative <laughs> combinations of words. Yeah, well, you get, you know, after you know the fifth try of the same paragraph, you, yes. you do tend to get creative with your, uh, you know, frustration. Yep, so. and then I can see in the sound waves like when you mess up <laughs> And so I'm like, okay. And then usually you're like, oh, fuck, I forgot a word. Or like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, what that doesn't make sense. What am I saying yeah, here? That happens quite a bit. So Yes. But I left some surprises for you in this, when you go back to listen to this monologue. No one's going to hear them but you, but yes. I did leave you some surprises. That's what I heard. I'm going to, yes. my plan is to edit tonight on an airplane. And I'm glad you gave me a heads up because I don't want to be like, you know, nodding off yeah. or like freak out yeah. next to people in midair. Yeah, it's not a lot of mistakes, but you know. When there are, and I did. You, I you did. really went for it, huh? Yeah, I did. Oh, uh, well, what's been going on, man? It's been a little while. Yeah, it has. And, you know, now it's, um, we're recording this in mid-September, but it's, I know you guys are going to be hearing it on the 30th. And as things, <laughs> it seems like everything just keeps changing, you know, day by day with everything that we do um, in the era of covid uh, so, but we've been making everything work. Um, we've got our tours up and running. We've got tours running this weekend, pretty much everywhere. And, um, you know, these outdoor socially distanced tours are actually working out pretty good because who the hell doesn't want to get out of the house at this point? Yeah. So people want to get out and do something. So we're giving them some things to do to get out. Our, our Alton tours are on sale right now. And uh, we're filling up for the month, um, our Chicago tours, Springfield, everywhere, really. Uh, the Decatur tours, our haunted Decatur tours, completely sold out, I mean, for the whole nice. month. So that's done already. So we don't have any more of those. Um, all of our River Road and our uh, Dinner and Spirits tours in Alton, all sold out now. Uh, we do still have some spots for our uh, evening with dinners that we're doing here at the Best Western Premier. It's where we're recording this mm -hmm. weekend. And um, we are um, and we're making those work, too. Uh, we we do, will not need to cancel or postpone anything. Uh, we've awesome. already got a plan no matter where we go with changes and rules and regulations and mandates and all that other crap. Um We've, we've got a plan to get through all of it, so we won't be changing anything. Everything's good to go for the rest of the month. So nice. we're pretty excited about it. So it's going to be very cool. So, um, you know, doing it here, we've got a private ballroom. We've got social distancing. We've got health and safety plus a bar right next to the ballroom, which it's is really even clutch. more important. Um, so, yeah, I've still got some more of those coming up. Uh, we did some at the end of the summer, but I've got some in the fall that are still available. So check those out. Just go to altonhauntings.com and you can check them out. 
We've still got ghost hunts and we've got some of our overnights left. And those are filling up too, because well, like I explained a couple last couple of times there, those are always small anyway. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have to do anything different for these. Once the locations were open to have them, that's all we needed. Right. Because we've got small groups anyway. So we do still have ghost hunts coming up uh, for this fall. Um, hit and miss as to far as what's still available. Uh, some stuff is pretty close to sold out. Some stuff is sold out. But we do have some stuff. So if you are somebody who's, you know, interested in, in ghosts and hauntings and, you know, we have ghost hunts and investigations for all different levels of experience. Um come along, just join us for one of them. They're a lot of fun. So one other thing that we did, and um, and I was mentioning things selling out, not selling out. Uh, we did post, um, last week we posted our Dead of Winter event for 2021, which yep. is going to be uh, a lot different than we've done in the past. Um, it's still going to be, um, well, we had like a VIP thing for just for 50 people. That's a COVID number that we can work with. Uh, but that actually sold out in five days. So we have nice. nothing left of that. But the free part of the event is still wide open. And when we say free, all you have to do is bring a canned good or non-perishable item. And you get to come in. We've got a free vendor room. We're going to have rotating speakers kind of in short increments all throughout the day. People can come and go as much as they want. It won't be like where we needed all those chairs last year. It'll be kind of a rotating thing where people can come in, stay for you know for a while or as long as they want to, and then rotate back out again. Right. So we'll be doing a lot of different speakers coming in for 15, 20 minutes at a time. I compared it to being at the State Fair. Okay. Have you ever been to the State Fair where the guy's up like, demonstrating a vegetable peeler or something you ever seen those no okay well that this is maybe the illinois state fair was they would the always World's have fair no this is like the illinois state's fair they would have guys in booths and they would be like demonstrating something that would make your your antiques look shiny and new or <laughs> like the light bulb car polish or really really vegetable peelers um you know, kitchen items and things, and a guy be up, and he, it'd be like one of those sham wow things. Oh, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? It would be like that, and he would be demonstrating that. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing with our speakers, um, except they fun. will not be selling vegetable peelers, but they will be up, you know, giving a talk, telling a story, uh, demonstrating. Um, I, Lisa Crick is coming. She's going to demonstrate like the Estes method, you know, the the thing with the uh, the, the EVPs and yeah. stuff in the real life. And a friend of ours, Adam Hyatt, he and his wife, Sarah, spoke a couple of years ago about the Granger house in Iowa, the haunted house. And uh, he and a friend of his have actually built and invented some equipment uh, that they're trying to going to try to mass produce kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're going to be demonstrating that. So it's going to be, so I guess it kind of is demonstrations of yeah. vegetable peelers, but anyway, um, so it's going to be fun. So put that on your calendar. It's February the 6th. 2021. Um, and it's going to be something we can do no matter what, you know, is going on with the pandemic at that point, mm -hmm. it's going to be open. So it's going to be fun. I'm, I'm excited about it already. And we will be making some plans uh, about the conference, but we're still, you know, we weren't yeah. going to be announcing that for a while. We're still not sure what's going to be going on. You know, everybody, I mean, we all thought this would be over by now. Yeah. Well, it would have been probably, but, hmm. um, anyway, it's not. And so we're, you know, I'm feeling good about next June, but we're not going to say, we're not going to put down anything, you know, 
hard on paper kind of thing quite yet until we see where things are at. Yeah, I don't want to get but we should know again. by that right. We should know by I think by around the first of the year or something. You know, we should know by January, February where we're going to be. Yeah. So maybe we'll be making an announcement of Dead of Winter. I don't know, but Dead of Winter we'll definitely be doing because we designed that to work with the pandemic. So awesome. Yeah. Well, are you ready to dive into some listener reviews? Yeah. Oh, I'm ready. All right, we got a couple, a couple good ones. A couple. Yep, roll ones. them. Go ahead. God damn it. Um, I'm gonna do that a lot. I just so you know. It's, uh, it's Hollywood. All this movie stuff. This it's is, really getting in my. It's really getting in my head. It's Hollywood Troy now. Okay, this one <laughs> is uh, from oh boy, Bubble Shania one two one one. Titled <laughs> these names just slay me. Um, titled cheesed out says I I work retail and. And am a cheesemonger, but with the oh, virus awesome. going, we uh, love cheese. Yeah, with the virus going on, my work has been a little boring as of late. We should maybe do some swapping on the cheese for books. Okay, hey, I, yeah. I could do that. So if you're listening, hit us up. Mary if Holly's you're listening, podcast, drop gmail. me an email. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Listen to podcast between customers. I came across you two looking for history about uh, Madame Lalaurie. So I listened to the two episodes. I started season one. Yes, I know the audio, but I've been hooked ever since. I love the banner back and forth. Troy knows his stuff, and Cody's questions make me laugh sometimes, but are always good for learning. I've passed it on to a couple friends. You guys have me hooked. I signed up for the Patreon, too. Thank you. Awesome. I always listen to the end. Don't change a thing. Definitely I, talk to me about cheese. I, I also realized that I knew who Troy was when I uh, brought up Scary Places and from the St. Francisville experiment. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It says, keep up the good work, guys. And then in all all caps, it says Lisa Rocks 2. Thank you. That is Lisa. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for that. This next one is titled, uh, it's a heart emoji, and then American Hauntings. And then it says, sorry, and then it's cut off, so I can't tell what it says. Um, but you don't have anything to be sorry for. It's from uh, Live to Shoot. So I got hooked at the beginning when I heard you do stories that are local to me, Southern Illinois, and enjoy the St. Louis season because I went to college there. I waited until the New Orleans season was over so I could binge. If I believed in past lives, I'd say I lived there in one. So many other podcasts are inaccurate and run with the gossip, uh, Madame Lalaurie, for example, but you guys tell well-researched stories. I got to see Troy at Harrisburg Library last year do a presentation on funeral traditions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. and That I'd, was fun. I'd like to see another someday when this is over. In the meantime, I'm looking forward to the Facebook Live events, and I think I'm going to do Patreon to score some bonus episodes. Thanks for the good work, guys. Cody, your pronunciations make the show. <laughs> laugh emoji, laugh emoji, laugh emoji. I literally LOL driving down the road. <laughs> well, be safe, and I hope I don't, you know, make you Man, <laughs> pay attention to driving. At Harrisburg Library. That was the one that had all the food. Remember, I told you about that. All or I did food. a thing about funeral customs, uh-huh. and so they had people bring like food that you Casseroles would take to. And stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Funeral potatoes and all ham and all kinds oh. of stuff that you would have at a funeral. It was really smart, and plus that pizza we had was amazing. But there the are hell? just so everyone knows, there are no good hotels in Harrisburg, Illinois. Just all so right. you know, Noted. don't ever think you're going to go to Harrisburg and find some place to stay. We ended up in Marion, right? Yeah. In Marion. Oh, man. So, yeah. So if you it's were like... really awful. If you so. were thinking like, okay, do we go to Aspen? Do we go to the Bahamas? <laughs> oh, well, do we go to... Know, no. no I mean, you. we're right on the edge of a really beautiful state forest and everything. There's lots of things to do there, but there are no good hotels. No in good hotels. No, they're awful. All right. So. Well, that, that's good to know. So there's your travel tip for this week. Perfect. This last review is from M. Sullivan 03. It's just titled Great Podcast. It says, Great Podcast. I love learning the history and hauntings of the different locations that you guys have been to. Makes my 53-minute commute to work less boring and also the ride back home. I look forward to listening to each and every podcast. So keep up the good work and keep the haunted history coming. 
We will cool. keep the history coming. Can't tell you if it's going to be good, bad, whatever. <laughs> but it's no, coming. No promises, but yeah. Uh, so thank you again for the reviews. Those really help people find our show. Are you ready to dive into sure. some haunted Absolutely. studios? Absolutely. All right. So you mentioned. I love this season. Have I mentioned that? You have. I really have. I, I, you know, I loved. I've loved all the seasons. I really love the the New Orleans season. Of course, mm-hmm. you know how much I love New Orleans. Yeah. But I got to tell you, this season is is really, for me, now that we're kind of past all the intro stuff, right, and we're right, really right. getting into stuff, um, I'm, I'm really enjoying this season. Yeah. And I keep adding things to my list. Of course. Of course now, I have not added entire episodes yet. Yes. Oh, yeah, well, I did last week. But yeah. I haven't really added any more seasons, but I have added some stories already that I didn't plan on uh-huh. doing, but I just couldn't leave them out. So I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying this season so far. No, oh, that's amazing. So. You have been in a chipper mood when we've been recording these. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's great. And I'm happy with this one. Cause like, you know, I do like get, you have to lay the foundation and get some sure, background oh, and stuff, sure. but I was just like, but now I'm, we're kind of rolling. I was like, I'm ready yeah. for a murder. And then, right. you know, yeah. we get a little we're bit rolling. of that. Yeah. Um, okay. So you mentioned stars help make Hollywood larger than life. So Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, Charlie <laughs> Chaplin, Theta Barra? Yeah. Uh, theta, Theta? Okay. Yeah, Theta Barra. She Gish. was the vamp. The vamp. See, this is the thing. I'm not going to... I know Charlie Chaplin. Here's the that's thing. It. I know. And, and you know, when I and when I was... I started in on this, and I was talking to Cody before we started this, you know, I I keep throwing in things like, you know... A, a lot of names that I, I told I told Cody, I said, I think I've mentioned Douglas Fairbanks in every episode uh-huh. so far, and I'm sure he'll turn up more. And I know that a lot of people who are probably listening to this do not know who, well, any of those people. Most people know who Charlie Chaplin is, but mm-hmm. that's about it. That's about it. Uh, Douglas Fairbanks was, as I, I told Cody, was kind of like the 1920s version of um, Harrison Ford. He was the Indiana Jones of the 20s, you know, Thief of Baghdad. He he did pirate movies, and he was like the adventure guy. And people just ate that stuff up, you know, when they were silent films. And I, I... I love movies, as everyone knows. That's why we have these, like, well, Cody and I both do. Yeah, I mean, let's, absolutely. you know, um, I mean, it's your real job is movies. So, but I, you know, I love old movies, new movies, doesn't matter. I just love movies. And so a lot of this stuff that I throw in here, uh, I, I hope, and as I mentioned in the monologue, I stopped in the, when I talked about the Biograph Girl and said, listen, guys, just go Google this, just go look it up because. I know a lot of people aren't familiar with a lot of the silent film things. And really, I wouldn't have been either if I hadn't, when I was, I guess, 11 or 12. My mom, for whatever reason, and my mom likes movies. She likes old movies. I I buy, I've bought her a lot of movies over the years that she loved. You know, she likes the old Bing Crosby movies and the Thin Man and all that stuff. So she likes old movies. But for some reason, when I was a kid, she had a copy of a, a biography of Rudolph Valentino. And it on her bookshelf, and I just picked it up for the heck of it, looking for something to read. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know, but you know, I'm 11. Yeah, I didn't know they ever had made movies that people no didn't sound. talk yeah. in, right? So there was no sound. So that was kind of my introduction to silent films and that whole era. But I know that most people, especially the younger that people get, the less exposed they are to, even those things are much more accessible than they were when I was a kid. People are much, much less exposed to the silent film era. Sure. And, you know, and Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin. I mean, you're familiar with United Artists, right? The film company. 
Mm, you know, United so. Artists. I don't think they're around anymore. I think they've gotten bought up. You know, yeah. like Sony did. You know, right, right, right. But United Artists was started by. Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, and Charlie Chaplin. Okay. And it became a major studio, but they started it so that they would have control over their own films. Oh, uh, yeah. Because this was the 20s, and there weren't that many actors. And so the people that were out there were making incredible amounts of money, but they wanted control over their product that they couldn't get. So they started their own studio. You know, um, and that's something that we'll probably get back to later. I think we'll talk about all of them at some point later on in this in this season uh because <laughs> i got a lot of episodes uh, to go yes. as you know and um but anyway um you know this is just something that i've always been fascinated with so i'm super excited about a lot of these old stories but i know that you know people have to look some of this stuff up and i get that but please do take the time to to check on some of this stuff because a lot of it i post about like on my facebook page i post about theta bear because People are familiar who she was, but she played Cleopatra in the early silent films, and she was known as the vamp. And she was this very, I mean, she was like a girl from like Iowa or Kansas or something, but she made, they, the studio made up this biography about how she was born in Egypt and oh, all boy. kinds of crazy stuff, you know, and um, we'll talk about the the Hollywood code. I mentioned it, but we didn't go into any detail because mm-hmm. it's... It's too boring for the monologue, but it's something that we can have some fun with. But, you know, people don't realize that back in the 20s during the silent film era, there were no restrictions on what you could put on film. So if you go back and watch a lot of the the silent films, if you can find them, because so many of them are gone, there's nudity, drug use, all kinds of stuff. Sounds awesome. That that you think of now as like an NC-17 movie. Well, that was pre-code movies. Yeah. I mean, there's some crazy stuff, and people just don't realize how Hollywood was in the 20s. But we're going to try to introduce you to that as things go on. All right. So you mentioned that the Hollywood movie colony came into existence thanks to a group out of the East Coast. And I, I just have a question. What is a, a Nickelodeon? A Nickelodeon. I knew you were going to And ask I knew I could that. Google this, but it's yeah. more fun to ask well, you Well, a questions. Nickelodeon was, when they first started, when they first invented moving pictures, um, and they were, and this was in the 1890s, so it was actually before like Hollywood and, and real movies got started, a movie might be five minutes long mm-hmm. or less. And it would be something that they would put in a machine and they would have um, like a, oh, shoot, I'm trying, like, like an arcade, mm-hmm. you know, like a video game arcade. And they don't have those much anymore either. Right. But when I was in, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, the arcade was, you know, was full of you know, space invaders and all this kind of stuff. But yeah. you would go into the Nickelodeon and, with a nickel and you put it in a machine and then you could watch a movie. And it'd be like five minutes long or something. And sometimes they would show them on screen. Uh, you would come in, you'd pay your nickel, you'd sit down in a in a room probably about the size of a hotel room mm-hmm. filled with folding chairs, and they would show a movie. But nobody had ever seen anything like this before. So a moving picture at the time was astounding. I mean, it was it yeah. was that's why when Edison invented this, he really clamped down on everybody. And, you know, he had the copyrights on the machines. He had the copyrights on everything, the movie cameras that, you know, and so these filmmakers who wanted to make their own movies were trying to get away from him because he was trying to, you know, get money out of everybody who made a movie and showed it somewhere. So these Guys who were owning these, who owned these Nickelodeons, were making money hand over fist. I mean, yes, it was only a nickel 
to get in, but a nickel went a lot further in you know the sure. early 1900s than it does now. If you do obviously. it a, uh, if you do it a thousand times a day, too, well, you right, know, like, right. Yeah. So they were making good money, and they decided that they wanted to make. And I and I do mention that in the in the monologue. I start talk. I talk about one reelers and two reelers. That needs an explanation too, um, because now everything is on digital. Right. But, um, Movies used to be on reels, and it has just not been that long ago. This is not. We're I mean, not talking even, about. We're talking about ten years ago. I remember reels, still on even, reels. Yeah, yeah. And when a movie came to your theater, it would come in boxes, and it would be you know five or six reels, and then your projectionist, which was a, a real job that you know they had a union and everything, mm-hmm. they would splice that together into one big giant reel, which would go on what was called the platter, and so these giant platters would have the entire movie on it. And then at the end of the run, you have to break it down, put it back on its reels, and then send it back to the studio. Mm -hmm. Well, one and two reelers were shorts. And we, in our lifetimes, have never seen shorts unless you've watched like something. um... When I was a kid, there used to be a show on PBS called Matinee at the Bijou. And it would be on every Saturday afternoon from like 4 to 5.30. And they would show a... Uh, a newsreel, which would be like the news of the day. And this would be what people, because there's no television. And in the early, early times, there weren't even, wasn't even radio. Uh, but people would come in, they'd get their news from the newsreel. Then there would be a one or two reel short, which would be like the Keystone Cops or Laurel and Hardy or somebody like that. And then they would have the serial, which would be continued week to week. Um, and it would be, um, you know, so usually like an action thing or a space thing or gangsters or something. And it would be about, you know, 25, 30 minutes long. And then each each episode would end with a cliffhanger. Uh-huh. So then you had to come back to the theater the next week to find out what happened. And, you know, that was the guys who made like Flash Gordon, you know, Crash yeah. Corrigan, things like that. And then would be the um, the main attraction. Which, you know, 75, 80 minutes tops, you know, back in those days. So, you know, one and two reelers were something that people loved because it was usually comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost always it was a comedy and it would be, sometimes it would be cartoons. Other times it would be, you know, well, the Keystone Cops were a huge, I mean, and they were named after the, the film company, Keystone Films. And they were, you know, cops that bungling, you know, they do crazy stuff, a lot of physical comedy yeah. stuff because it's silent. So you need a lot of physical comedy. It's not like you're dropping one-liners at this point. Right, right. So you need a lot of physical comedy. And so these were one and two reelers. So there's a lot of things that I just throw out in this, and I'm I'm hoping that people understand it. And if they don't, that's what we're here for. Yep. Um, and that's why people say, well, Cody asks... Dumb questions. Well, no, that's the whole point. Yep. So, you know. It's so hard for me to not Google this stuff when I'm going through here because I'm like, it would just be way more fun to have Troy explain yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I love explaining it because, I mean, I yeah. I love movies. So Absolutely. So you've mentioned some of the most popular films to be released have been those dealing with the dark side. So Ghosts, Monsters, Supernatural. Not surprisingly, many of the movie studios where such films have been made have their own tales of ghosts and hauntings. And you said how Universal Monsters did it for you. Can you yeah. can you tell me about that? What your favorites? How you got well, into it? Well, you know. Oh, I um, I must have been eleven or twelve. I, I want to say around the same time that I'm discovering mm-hmm. uh, lots of things from you know haunted houses. I mean, it was all around that same age. But one summer, I had a terrible, some kind of weird virus, and it was I was just deathly sick for like two or three weeks. Mm. I mean, really sick. 
And I, I mean, I couldn't do anything other than just lay on the couch with the, you know, the famous puke bowl right, next right. to me. Or I think my mom upgraded it to a garbage can eventually. <laughs> um, but I remember laying on the couch all summer. But when I was growing up, you know, we didn't have cable. Um, I lived on a farm. Well, there wasn't cable yet. When I was 11, there was no cable. But we had just the broadcast stations that we got on our antenna. And there was uh, a station out of Champaign, Illinois, that every day at three o'clock had what was called the early show. And they would have two hours of an introduction of some kind and then a movie, usually an old movie. And they would often do theme weeks like Humphrey Bogart week or, you know, whatever. Well, one week while I was sick, they had um, Monster Week and they they showed um, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Invisible Man, and the Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I'm like, okay, movies don't get any better than this. This is the coolest stuff I've ever seen. And that for that that same year, at the end of the summer, my mom bought me a subscription to film, Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, uh, which was a real magazine, believe it or not. Sure. And um, it was just filled with monster movie stuff. And I just, you know, I, I kept that subscription until eventually it went out of business. I mean, I, the guy who edited it, I, I met him. I was in LA, got to meet him, see his museum. I mean, I was hooked, totally hooked on monster you, movies and horror films. Were you keeping them in business for a long no, time? No, I think there were lots of people like me. Okay. I mean, right. if you, if you look back and you look at interviews with a lot of people that are around my age that are now making movies, you know, or my age or older than I am, because the magazine actually started years before I was even aware of it. But I mean, guys like John Landis, Steven Spielberg, all these guys, all of them read famous monsters. They were all hooked on it. They were monster kids. And I was one of them. And, um, you know, the universal monsters are still something to this day that I never get tired of is, is old and kind of creaky as some of the movies are. It doesn't matter. It's still, you know, it's still great stuff. And so I've, I've never really lost that that love of the original stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Universal, that's, it's always going to have a, you know, a place in, in, in my heart, I guess, because it's, it was something that really got me interested in movies. Yeah. How, so how have you felt about them trying to revamp that well, universe? And um, everything? I, the Invisible Man was great. Yeah. That the was The Mummy great. was terrible. Yes, I agree. Um, I wouldn't have put that out as something that had nothing to do with the Universal Monsters. That movie was just bad. Yeah. Um, I've even, I even, I, I watched it. I bought the movie thinking it was going to be great. Mm-hmm. Watched it and actually just deleted it off my... Oh, shit. Uh, yeah. That bad, and then, huh? It was that bad. And so then I went back and tried to watch it again, thinking maybe I'd been too harsh. Nope, still sucks. I saw it in theaters, uh, but I never movie. watched it again. Terrible movie. Invisible Man, though, was great. Yeah. And there, there is a way to... Re- to reboot those things and still make them good. Yeah. But and they did that with Invisible Man. I think. Yeah, yeah, they did. They did by doing something completely different. And but trying to do a universe of it, I mean that was just riding the Avengers coat. Oh yeah, of course. And I don't know, it just didn't re- really work for me. That's but fair. um, you know, there is a way to do it. I mean, you know, in the mid 90s, Coppola did uh Dracula, mm-hmm. which I mean, it's Keanu Reeves with a really bad English accent, yeah, but yeah. the movie's fun. Yeah. I do like the movie. The Frankenstein one, not so much. You know, my problem with the Mary Shelley Frankenstein was, and I don't get me wrong, I love Robert De Niro, but not as the Frankenstein monster. Yeah. Every time I'd look at him, I expect, because he had like this, this like 
cut like in his lip and I kept thinking he was going to say are you talking to me the whole time <laughs> and I hate to be that guy but I and I and I like Kenneth Branagh I liked everybody in it yeah and I like I like De Niro, but not not in that role. And yeah. So I had a hard time with that one. It wasn't nearly as good. So. Fair enough. Well, I don't I, know what'll happen next. I got to play around with some uh, Universal monster stuff. I, I did the Hollywood Horror Nights. Um, oh yeah, that's right. And there was a, a whole yeah one of the whole the haunted houses was Universal monsters. It was really cool. They did a really good job. Um, okay, but moving on. So yes, yes, so, yes. I mean, we can go we way on a side track and, here, and we I'm, will. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. So Universal Studios, founded by Carl uh, Limley as Yankee Film Company in 1909, his studio became the first to use the name of the film star in its marketing, which is just brilliant and common practice. Yeah, now, now and, yeah. but not at the time yeah. because Edison didn't want anybody's name above his. Sure. Yeah. So he wasn't going to name his actors. Of course know? not. Which would it's hindsight, you know. Probably should Most have done people that. don't remember who you know Carl Limley is. I mean, they don't even know the name. I had no idea. Right, exactly. The but you know Edison. You do yeah. know Edison. So yeah. 1912 merged eight little studios into Universal, moved to Hollywood, financed all his own films. Brings on his son Carl Jr., who I can only imagine runs Hardy's now as head of. <laughs> I do say that. Thank you, as head of Universal Pictures. Uh, so this kid for his twenty kno- first birthday. Yeah, twenty first <laughs> birthday. That's that's amazing. Uh, here's a drink and here's a company. Yeah. Um, so the kid knows his stuff. He buys and builds theaters, converts the studio to sound, began making Oscar winning productions. Um, and then you mentioned during the years of the, depre- of the Depression, monsters ruled the screen. And I was curious. I know I've read about this a little bit. But maybe I had it backward. But don't we typically get a lot of like villain movies yes. when things are? Isn't it when things are yes. good though? No, I thought it was no. the opposite. Is it no, go with it, the times? It is. It goes with the times. And you, when when things are tough, uh, you get um, you get people will go to the movies to escape, mm-hmm. and you get a lot of. That's why over the last four years or so. I don't know why that would be a time. No idea. But anyway, the last four years or so, we've seen a lot of really groundbreaking, dark, dark stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's that's why uh, it, it tends to reflect the times. But mm-hmm. you know, but on the other hand, during the depression, not only did you have the monsters, but you also had you know Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers doing you know bubbly dancing right. musicals and Busby Berkeley movies and stuff like that that you would not have had otherwise. So it, it's it's really an escapism, but you do, say, for instance, we've seen a lot more, you know, we've seen Get Out, we've seen Us, you know, you've seen uh, a lot of, you've seen a resurgence really in uh, black filmmaking mm-hmm. because of the times. They are right. a reflection of the times. Um you know, Antebellum just came out. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. It I've, just came out I've yesterday. I've heard disappointing things, but um, I'm going to I'm gonna check it out myself. I think you have to. Yeah, I'm going to need to check it out myself. Yeah. But, um, you know, Candyman got bumped till next I spring. Know. And, you know, and I think that would have been very reflective of the times, but they sure. just didn't want it at home, I guess. Yeah. You know, which if things don't change, they're not going to have much of a choice I at know. some point. Uh, but where we're at right now, I think, Things are looking better for the spring, and so people are moving sure. things there. Fingers so crossed. We, 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 we've got our Halloween episode coming up, where we're going to be talking about horror films, because there is still stuff out there. Oh, yeah. I found some good movies yeah. um, that no one, that I didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. None of the things that I was really excited about looking forward to, we don't get to see any of those. We have to wait. No more but antlers. There's some, I know, but there's some stuff that has snuck in under the radar, though, that I've been really pleased with. I saw a pretty yep. good one last this past week, mm-hmm. uh, but I'll just save all this okay. stuff. So fair we'll, enough. We'll talk about it 
uh, in late October when we do our Halloween episode. I did go back to the oh, theater. Oh, wait a minute. No, what? no, that's the end of the year. That's our New Year's episode is the movies of the year. Halloween is going to be our decade Oh, movies, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's going to be horror films of the 80s. Yes. And I am so excited because yeah. I just rewatched one the other night that yeah. I saw in theaters when it came out in 83. Okay. That's how old I am. And uh, I saw it in the theater and I remembered it being super cheesy. And it still is. But it was pretty darn good, I have to say. It was a lot of fun. I I mean, I stayed up really late to watch it. Yeah. I just feel like going to bed yet, and I saw it pop up on Shudder, and I thought, well, what the hell? I'm going to watch that. Yeah, check it out. I got to put this on the list for Cody. He's got to watch this. I'm I'm down. All right. I I did go back to the theater. I saw Tenet. I got to get you that list. Oh, did did you go see Tenet? I went and saw Tenet. How was it? We have to stop giving Christopher Nolan hundreds of millions of dollars. We, we need blanche. to stop giving him carte blanche. Yes. It's like Stephen King during the cocaine years. Yeah, we right. have to. Well, he needs an editor, you know, and that's what I kept. I look at the size of this book and I go, whoa, somebody needed to shut him down. Yeah, you know? <laughs> dream catcher. But yeah, like, yeah. Which, or I guess that was Oxy, wasn't it, from the X? Yeah, I think I, that was, I, I don't know. Something. But yeah, it's, um, I, I, that's what I've heard too. And yeah. I wondered what you thought. He just. What? We are way I know, off track I know. Here. Okay, so sorry. Right, let's get a handle on this. All right, late Cody night- actually has to catch a plane. I do. So I really we, do. We really have to finish this. So, okay, so by late 1930s, the Limleys lost the studio. New heads make smaller budget productions like westerns, melodramas, serials, and sequels to classic, uh, to horror classics. And since yeah, that's where we ended up with like yeah. Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein. You know, Bride of Frankenstein's a superior to the original, but then you get Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, all this. And the mummy, like six mummy movies and stuff with all these different actors. And yep. but people would still, even though each successive film would make less money, mm-hmm. it was still money. Yeah, sure. You know, gotta so. have it coming in. Right. And this is when they pulled in the actors you talked about from like radio and made movie yeah. stars, Abbott and Costello. Abbott and Costello for one. I mean, these were radio guys that no one had ever seen in person. Yep. And now you put Abbott and Costello with Dracula and Frankenstein. Well, hell, that's, there you go. You know, that was money in the bank there. So there you dumb, go. ridiculous movies, but money in the bank in the 40s. So Right, right. And then Universal goes through some changes, taking over, expands into other things. And you amusement said, parks. Yes, yeah. amusement yeah. parks, of course. <laughs> and you said the hauntings have been record, uh, reported at Universal Studios have their roots, not surprisingly, in the horror films that were such an important part of its early days. And with one man, Lon Chaney? Chaney. Chaney, okay. Oh, man, so sad. Chaney, all right. Yeah, so, so let, sad. Let's you talk about... Lon Chaney I'm, so, I'm sorry. But you know you know the image of the Phantom of the Opera, Yeah, right? of course. Okay, so Absolutely. that's Lon Chaney. Right, so, so, okay. so let's talk about the man of a thousand faces. Yes. One of the most popular actors of the silent era. Uh, this is interesting. Born to deaf parents, so he adapted easily to like the expressive type right. of acting you needed. Would do anything to make a role seem more real. Go into oh, detail with the crazy stuff. shit oh, he did. Oh, crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, um... Eventually falls in love, gets married, has a child. Uh, that doesn't work out so well. Um, well, and Lon Chaney Jr. is, you know, became a horror film star in his own right. Mm-hmm. He was the Wolfman. Right, right, right. Uh, but he also did a lot of really crappy movies. Really? He was not, he is not a great actor. Okay. And so he really never lived up, in my opinion, never really lived up to the name to be the junior. Yeah. You know, but... You know, he was around longer, I guess, for most people who love horror films. He was around a lot longer than his father was, you know. Sure. So. Yeah. So, so his uh, marriage kind of goes south. So that his wife basically tries to very dramatically commit suicide on stage. Do you know anything about this? this <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's more did? detail to it. Um, I believe she took poison, tried to take oh, poison geez. on stage. And I mean, it was all just dramatic. Even It in was death, all huh? staged. Yeah. I mean, it was all, well, 
on stage and staged, you know, suicide. But uh, it was an attention-seeking sure. kind of thing. Right. Know. And you mentioned he plays Phantom of the Opera, Hunchback, things like that. Um, talked about he starred in the uh, horror film London After Midnight, quite possibly the most famous lost film it ever. Is. It is. Um, if you've ever seen the images from it, there are um, – I think we talked about this a little bit. Um, but It sounded familiar. You see – yeah, because it's a movie about – or, you know, I think I talked about it. I was doing a thing about Haunted Hollywood recently. And when you see the image, everybody recognizes the image from it, but the movie is nowhere to be found. It got lost. Mm. There was a huge fire years, and this has been years and years ago, um, at one of the studios, and it, it destroyed this gigantic collection of silent films. So, so many, I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of films that were made that are now lost yeah. uh, because they were all made on nitrate film. And I guess maybe in the 90s, there was a big movement called Nitrate Won't Wait uh, for to, to move the nitrate films onto a different kind of stock because nitrate films are, well, as the name might suggest, I mean, nitrate, you know, is what they make dynamite right. out of. Very, so very flammable. It's very flammable. And that's how the fire started because it, it will spontaneously combust. And so tons and tons of films are lost. Mm. Um, we do have clips of London After Midnight and the the script still exists and there was a cut done a few years ago maybe eight, seven, eight years ago where they tried to piece together as much of it as they could mm-hmm. I think it was available on Blu-ray maybe in Criterion or something but they put together this um, cut to try to walk you through the story and essentially it's about a detective that poses as a vampire um, so it's kind of like a Scooby-Doo episode. Oh, okay, He's yeah. not really a vampire, but the image of him playing the vampire has become really well known. Um, they actually remade it in the late 40s with Bella Lugosi, mm-hmm. uh, and it's called Mark of the Vampire and, and with Carol Borland and Bella Lugosi, and it's essentially the same story. Uh, but it's without Lon Chaney's vampire. Instead, you get Lugosi, who looked, you know, was Dracula. Right. You know, so you really are just getting Dracula again. But um, Lon Chaney's vampire is very cool. I don't know if you've ever seen the image. But I don't know. It's, it's, it's very cool. Well, I'll have to check um, it out. Yeah. So, so he eventually passes away, but his ghost is often seen at stage 28. Um, and so people see a man with a black cape. And he's often seen running through the catwalks uh, of visitors who don't know any better, lights turning off and on by themselves, doors opening and closing. And we talked before about why theaters would be a good candidate for haunted places. You know, a lot of energy built up, a lot of drama, a lot of people acting out roles, a lot of uh, dreams being smashed. Oh, yeah. OK, I've seen this picture before. Yeah. 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 yeah I'll, uh, I'll put I it just in the showed sh- him Lon Chaney. I'll put it in the show notes. Night. Yeah, he looks pretty crazy. Yeah, um, but yeah, why theaters could be a good place, you yeah. know, for potential hauntings. Well, and, you know, and it is it was the sounds it was the set for Phantom of the Opera, mm-hmm. which is you know anybody even if you haven't seen it, if you've only seen the musical version, if you haven't seen the original silent film of of Phantom of the Opera, you still recognize Cheney, and you may not even know who he is, right. but you recognize that image because it's it's a very famous image of him as. Eric, the Phantom of the Opera. And um, the movie is actually worth watching, even though, I mean, I know it's, you know, I I mean, I I have trouble getting people to watch foreign films with subtitles and trying to get most people to watch a silent film is next to impossible. But it's got some very cool imagery in it and it was a groundbreaking for its time. There is a sequence in it that is actually color. Um, It's not color like we think of now, but it was a 
tinged color from when he shows up at the ball in the masquerade ball mm-hmm. in the uh, Mask of the Red Death costume, and which is another famous image from the film. And um, it's it's pretty amazing. And you know, I, I'm hoping that if nothing else out of these these episodes that people will go back and check out some of this old stuff because it's 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 really worth yeah I mean it's it's definitely a part of our history that's that's worth taking a look at awesome well we'll move on to Culver Studios so very very famous lot films like Gone with the Wind Citizen Kane are filmed there it shows Andy Griffith Lassie Batman made there too started in 1918 and the man who introduced the world to Mary Pickford like you said is America's sweetheart um, and the man looker just Google Mary Pickford yeah just, yeah that'd be a I'm not I'm not even gonna bother just Google it because it's so you can see what she looked like and see who she was but she was pretty awesome right so. and then Thomas how do I pronounce his last name Ince Ince okay gotcha Ince so he said sadly he's remembered much more today for his scandalous death than for his contribution to the art of movie making so he dies in November 1924 while celebrating his birthday on a yacht owned by newspaper uh, magnate William Randolph Hearst whom I've heard that name yeah before, Hearst but yeah Hearst is the guy who Citizen Kane is based on okay which well, is that... why Citizen Kane was such a failure when it came out because Hearst knew it was about him <laughs> wasn't happening and it. so he made sure that it didn't get any promotion in any of his newspapers oh man so you know it's now considered to be like you know, one of the top yeah five it depends on the list it's usually you know, number but one it's, on tons yeah it's usually yeah. number one is like the greatest film ever made you know with Casablanca usually is like number two right or, or vice versa but and Citizen Kane is a great film yeah. It really is. And but if you watch it and know it's about Hearst because, you know, Orson Welles just just didn't give a shit. <laughs> I mean, he he was a boy wonder who could do anything he wanted to, and that's what he chose to do. And and Hearst really hated him for it. Yeah. So well, so let's talk about this. But part. he was a creep. But don't get me wrong, Hearst was an awful, awful person. Right. right. So. No, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. So, it was Saturday, November 15th, 1924. Hearst throws a big party on his yacht. At some point, um, Inch, what'd you say? Ince. Ince, why can't, okay. Thomas Ince. Ince dies of heart failure, but his body wasn't found on the yacht. He was discovered in his Benedict Canyon home. None of the famous guests are called to testify. Rumors start he's killed on the yacht. Um, and I like this little tidbit. Another guest at the party that night was actor and friend of Thomas Ince, Charlie Chaplin, who, rumor had it, had been having an affair with Marion Davies. Uh, the story went that Charlie and Marion slipped off together, and after a loud altercation, Hearst pulled out a revolver and tried to shoot Chaplin, but missed and hit Well, and, and the thing is, is that everybody knew he had this revolver because he'd been waving it around during, during the, 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 the party. Yeah. And he was shooting, and I didn't put this in here, but he'd been shooting at seagulls. Oh, God. Trying to shoot them out of the air. I mean, the guy's a... That's complete ass. Yeah. I mean, you know, and one of those guys with more money than sense who just, you know, wanted to bully everybody, which right. is essentially what he did. I mean, he just, everyone was afraid to cross him. So he said, this is this is what happened, and that's what you're going to say has happened, yeah. and they did, you know. And people jokingly called his yacht William Randolph's hearse yeah, for years after. And one. that's just kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, legend has it that Thomas N. still watches over Culver Lot. So witnesses have reported seeing a ghost of a man climbing the stairs in the main admin building, heading for the executive screening room. This has been in private projection room during his tenure at the studio. And, and again, remodeling seemed to bring out the worst because um, in 1988, when he began to reveal his displeasure over some major <laughs> renovations, the two workmen saw a man with a bowler type hat watching them from the catwalks and then walk um, into the second floor wall. 
special effects man Eugene uh, Hilchi spoke to another man who had seen Ince, but this time the ghost spoke and said, I don't like what you're doing in my studio. <laughs> yeah. Then he vanished into the wall. We don't get a lot of talking ghosts. No, so much, not a whole lot. You know? But yeah, that's a, that was one who definitely got the point across. That's very interesting. I just I like that story. <laughs> and I love, you know, when people say they walk through walls and stuff, you know, yeah. you, 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 a lot of times you just disappear, but, you know, to see them go through the <laughs> yeah. wall. That's really cool. Moving on to Paramount Studios. So the last major studio to actually be located in Hollywood, and it's located right next to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yeah, which is an amazing cemetery. Yeah, you go on and on about it. Oh, I do, because I felt like it really needed... And, and we're going to come back to Hollywood forever several times. Mm-hmm. I mean, it used to be used to be called Hollywood Memorial Park. Right. And then um, I, late 80s, it was bought out by, uh, a, the, I believe, just a couple of like private people, not yeah. like a company or anything. And they just decided to really, you know, really take advantage of the people who were, not take advantage of the people who were buried there, but take advantage of the um the fame of the people sure. buried there yeah. and really go to town with it i mean almost to the point where some would consider it tacky right uh but they really played up the you know when you go out to hollywood you could get like maps to the stars homes and yeah. stuff this is essentially that in a nutshell Got i it. mean they have a map where everybody is buried all the famous people um they do concerts there they do movie screenings all the time I they're bet. on the wall of one of the, the big mausoleums. Yeah, yeah yeah that's awesome um and so they they have movies there all the time and stuff so it's um it's just they've really made it like f- tourist friendly, I guess is the, sure. way to, the way to describe it. But there's a ton of really famous people buried there. Right, right, yeah. So it's founded in May 1912. It's originally a famous players film company, uh, but it's it's aimed at producing films for the middle class. Eventually turns it into Paramount Studios. Signs and develops uh, many of the leading early stars. You mentioned a lot of them. Oh, Douglas Fairbanks. Yes, again. I mean, you know, guy was everywhere. He's everywhere. Um, as always, Paramount continued to place importance on its stars. So by the 1930s, Talking Pictures introduced a wide range of powerful new actors. Oh, there's so many names here, uh, but I the know. Marx Brothers are part of that. Which yeah. uh, that Bing familiar. Crosby. Bing most Crosby. People know, you know, Carol. Lombard married to Clark Gable, uh-huh. Gary Cooper from High Noon. During this period, Paramount was literally a movie factory, turning out 60 to 70 pictures a year, which is awesome. Um, and then, okay, should we? do you want to talk about the production Sure, we code? should probably okay. talk about this because it's going to come back up uh, at some point in this. And I don't think a lot of people know that much about the code. Um, the Hayes Code or the Hollywood Production Code um, they started it in 1930, but nobody was really enforcing it much. And the production code really came about because of all the scandals and things that happened in Hollywood in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about pretty much all of them in future episodes, sure. from Fatty Arbuckle to Olive Thomas to all these you know, overdoses and scandals and things that happened. And Hollywood was really getting a a bad name. And so the studios were, a lot of pressure was being put on them because it was believed that they were leading to the destruction of American society. It's kind of like prohibition. Right, right. I mean, you know, if you're drinking, then you're destroying, you know, society. It was pretty much they were blaming the movies on everything that was going wrong. So they put together what was called the, the, the code. And it was... Um, really kind of put together by the studios and by a guy named Will Hayes. And Will Hayes had been a, um, 
he was a lawyer who had worked for the Postmaster General. He'd been the campaign manager for President Warren G. Harding. And of course, he was a Republican. So they decided that they would start, you know, banning or censoring a lot of things that were in the movies. So the production code had three kind of general ideas behind it. Mm-hmm. One was that no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Oh, wow. That was number one. Number two, correct standards of life subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment shall be presented. In other words, um, nobody could be gay or, right. you know, um, you know, uh, multi-race or anything like Jeez. that. Uh, and then no law, natural or human, again, getting back into that, can be ridiculed um, and no sympathy. So in other words, um, you couldn't, if somebody was a bank robber, they had to be the bad guy. Uh-huh. They couldn't, they couldn't be like, you know, robbing banks for good, for a good reason. You know, well, yeah, if only if you were, you know, redeemed, redeemed at the end. Okay. You know, like Robin Hood, he steals from the rich to give to the poor. Right. So there were a lot of other things that you couldn't do too. There was no nudity because up until 1930, there was nudity in any movie they wanted to present That's it in. There awesome. is a lot of nudity in silent films. People just have no idea yeah. how much there is. Um, and you couldn't ridicule religion. Uh, there was no uh, illegal drugs could be portrayed Jeez. in a film. Um, alcohol could only be featured when it was required by the plot. <laughs> uh, certain types of crime like arson or safe cracking, you couldn't show that because that would that was something that anyone could do and it might encourage people safe to do cracking. it. Right. No reference could be made to sexual perversion, which was just homosexuality. Right. That was it. Yeah. And you couldn't show Jeez. anyone giving birth. In fact, you couldn't <laughs> even talk about people being pregnant. Oh In fact, you God. couldn't use that word. Pregnant? You couldn't use pregnant. You could only use expecting. And that actually went on for a long time. Like really? in the, if you watch old episodes of uh, I Love Lucy, mm-hmm. you'll notice they always have two. There's twin beds. Right. There's never one bed. Or the Brady and Bunch thing. when that. Lucy was pregnant with Desi Jr., um, she couldn't actually say she was pregnant. She could only be expecting. And that was wow. it. Um so they they had of course language you couldn't see it. There were all kinds of offensive phrases and words you couldn't use. You couldn't talk about adultery, couldn't talk about premarital sex unless it was necessary to the plot. And if it did, it had to be presented as an unattractive option. And there was a list that went on and on. But um, they really ignored the code at first. It really came around about 1927. It wasn't until 30 that they started enforcing it because, and finally, the only reason they did is because a group formed called the Catholic League of Decency. Mm-hmm. And they began threatening to boycott all movies that were not made by the production code. Jeez. And so then Hollywood had to start following the code. And they kept it up until uh, the 1950s. And Damn. by that time... You know, um, television had come along and there were foreign films that were now being seen. And Hollywood realized that they had to stop this or they were going to lose a lot of money out of it. So in the late 60s, the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, started with the codes, the the rating system that we have today, which is, you know, G, PG, uh, and PG-13 didn't come around until... um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. No That's shit. what started that uh, because it has, you know, the scenes in it where the, the priest rips people's oh, hearts yeah, out. Yeah. Some and they stuff. realized PG might not be strong enough for this one. So PG-13 came along. Uh, before that, it was it just went from PG to R. 
And then X, you know, and a lot of people don't understand what X means mm-hmm. either, uh, which is interesting because X is pretty much now what we consider NC-17. Uh-huh. Uh, but it started out as X, and it was actually the porn industry of course who took advantage of x and added two more x's onto it uh-huh. and made triple x and then that gave you the idea you were going to see some hardcore stuff right right and they you know they're an industry i mean we have to no matter how you feel about porn um you have to thank porn for so many for things creating the you know home movie industry yeah because they were the first ones to start producing Movies you could watch at home. If, mm-hmm. it, if it wasn't for the porn industry, we wouldn't have... Well, we probably would have gotten it eventually, but we wouldn't have started seeing videotapes in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. Right. Uh, but, you know, the porn industry knew there was a demand for things to watch at home, and so right. they started producing it. And um, I, most people who are listening to this probably don't remember in the early 80s, what a huge, huge scandal and problem it was. The studios were livid about home video. They did everything they could to try to stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like streaming now. Right. Um, it has become like streaming, and especially during you know the pandemic, you know, people are starting to release things at home that we, and we've talked about that things that were supposed to come out in the theater that we've ended up being able to watch at home. Yeah. And, um, that's been one of those things that has shook the industry to its core because they want theater releases. And, you know, the time between a theater release and a home release has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter over Mm -hmm. time. It used to be 90 days. Well, before that, you don't probably don't even remember this, but when a movie would come out, let's say it's 1992 and Terminator 2 was out in theater. Yeah. And six months later, it becomes available on DVD or not DVD then, but videotape. And, but you can only rent it. And we've talked about this. Yeah. And you don't remember this, but when you used to, to go and try to buy a movie, it would cost you $150, $160. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, because they were selling them strictly to you know movie rental places who would then get their money back by renting it 100 times. Right, right. Uh, but you couldn't buy them at home. You'd have to wait another three, four, five, six months, and then you could buy it at, you know, for $19.95 or $24.95, and sure. then you could buy it and watch it at home. All that has changed now, you know, but these are things that have happened in increments. And it was the same way back then, you know, Um, but the code was something that became very important. And you will see a lot of movies or you'll see something or you might see a reference to something being a pre-code movie. Mm -hmm. And normally that implies that it has something to do that you're going to see. It's a silent or it's an early talkie, you know, from, you know, the early 30s, maybe that slipped through that has nudity in it. Or, okay, for instance, King Kong. There's a movie everybody pretty much has seen, even the original one. Most people who are into like horror films and stuff have seen the original black and white King Kong with Fay Ray. What they don't know is how much was cut out of it uh, before it was released because of the code. Um, There's a scene where King Kong shakes the log. You might remember that. And and the guys fall down into the pit. Um, In the original cut of that, giant spiders come out and eat them. They had to cut that out. Uh, they also cut out the part where uh, King Kong picks up Fay Ray, has her in the palm of his hand, and actually takes her clothes off oh, and strips her naked. And again, that's most people, and you could see it now because it's been restored, but all of that was cut out. And to make matters worse, every state had their own censorship board. Oh, geez. So a movie that was showing in Illinois 
might not be the same movie that's showing in Kansas because the Kansas board didn't like this, 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 and this, so they cut it all out. Jeez. So that's that's how much things have changed, but it's all, I don't know, maybe it's not important to our story, but it's important to me yeah. to get across to to tell people about these things because I, I, I want people to understand how much things have changed, yeah. you know, because it's just... I don't know. I just think this stuff is cool. It's so, a different world. And I apologize to anybody who I'm boring with this, um, including Cody. I like the facts. Um, Lisa, I know, is bored out of her mind listening to me talk about these old studios and stuff, but I really like this stuff. No, so. I like the facts, and this is our... Did you really have to have that look on your face when you raised your hand? <laughs> That's just her face. So, no matter how many actors have worked at Paramount over the decades, many believe the source of the hauntings at the studio is connected to the cemetery we mentioned that lies just outside Paramount's borders. So, the connection between the studio and the cemetery is a common wall that separates the two properties. Stages 31 and 32 seem to have the most activity, like footsteps and equipment turning off and on or operating by itself. And uh, the doors make a lot of noise, but there's a story of a guard hearing footsteps and the doors open. Nobody to be found. We deal with that kind of stuff a lot, you know, but when it's like a, a heavy door, a door that makes a lot of noise, you know, it makes it even more more eerie. Is that another guard heard someone walking across the stage on his way out? It's dark. It's filled with props. You know, doesn't know how anybody's meandering around up there. Didn't hear the doors, but then uh, never closed down the stage by himself after that, <laughs> which I don't blame him. Uh, ghosts are said to appear at the Paramount Gates, and this really fucks with the security guards a lot because it's people they don't recognize. Yes, hear this story a lot. Right. I haven't heard it as much recently, but I used to hear this story a lot. Yeah, and I would imagine if there's one thing that could make somebody stay around, it's probably chasing that fame, you know, and trying to get <laughs> yeah. trying to get famous even after death. Uh, one night, a guard saw an unfamiliar person lurking about, follows the man to the corner of the wall where he should have been trapped, waits a little bit, turn, and he turns the corner just in time to see the man vanish into the cemetery wall. Um, which, again, I love, I love when they go through the walls. <laughs> the last um, thing we'll talk about, so the Hart Building, it's considered to be the most haunted site on the studio lot. It was once part of the Desilu Studio, owned by Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. They say the spirit of a woman haunts the upper floors and that she gives off the odor we're of for an... the We're for the nerds out there. That's where Star Trek was created. Oh, okay. Desilu nice. Studios, that's... You have to thank Lucy yeah. for the fact that Star Trek ever made it onto the air. So anyone who's oh, didn't she like write a, a letter or like convince somebody? Yeah, we talked about that. Oh yeah, they that. got it on the air, Damn. and uh, it would have never have aired without Lucy. That's amazing. So, yeah. um, she tends to be seen mostly by men, and stories have circulated that she often takes things from and throws takes things and throws them on the floor. Uh, which is just, that's just fun, good fun. Um, another security guard's working late in the heart building and one of the doors slams on its own. But the thing about this is the door's on a hinge and it can only uh, close very slowly. One of those, slowly. yeah, those suspension hinges. Yeah. Right. Oh, man. So haunted studios, you know? Like I said, we talked about theaters and, you know, so much energy and well, so next much drama. Week, next, you know? Our next episode, we'll be getting into theaters. So into we'll theaters. Be Hollywood theaters. Oh, theaters. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think just any place where it's like performance yes. art, you yeah, know. We'll but... be getting into that next episode. Yes. That's awesome. Okay. Well, it's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. Spoiler alert. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. Our first note comes to us from Lisa. It says, Greetings. I've been. Not this Lisa. Not this Lisa. No, she thank hates you. everything about this podcast. I've been. So. I do not. <laughs> oh, boy. I've been. She just hates it when I talk about movies. That's the thing. Well, so, I mean, you know. I, I, I get it. No, so <laughs> I've been binge listening to the podcast since finding it a month or so ago. Definitely a fan. Really enjoy listening to how the show has changed and evolved. I'm currently a couple of episodes in the New Orleans season. Very interesting and entertaining as always. I'm a painter and tend to listen to podcasts and audiobooks while I work. My four year old daughter came up. 
uh, to me working a number of times recently while listening to your podcast and started asking about the symbol of the skull with the headphones, which was showing up on my screen. She has a thing for skulls already, so she's been referring to the show as the skull and headphones show. <laughs> then I realized you sold the Damn shirt. Damn it, we missed, a, we, we missed that name. I know. We? Then I realized that uh, you sold a shirt with that image on it, and of course she needed one. Sadly, the smallest size is enormous on her, but it's a sleeping <laughs> shirt. Thought you might be amused by, uh, and not by a non-creepy child, That's so I've attached a photo. Keep up an awesome podcast. And she sent a photo. It was very cute. Um, thank you so much. I'm glad that she likes the show, too. Uh, this last one's from Ashley, and it just says, I just wanted to say that I love the show. I've been listening for a long time. New Orleans has been my favorite season yet. I recently, Mine, too. Yeah, I recently yeah. moved from my 10-year home in Kansas City and wanted to suggest a future season. There's a lot of haunted history there, and, of course, I really miss it. And I'm, uh, well, interestingly, biased. Uh, Kansas on. City. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay, biased toward um, its interesting history and paranormal phenomena. Keep up the good work. Okay, what's well, it? Well, obviously, we are not doing an, a season on it, or at least not yet, yeah. but Becky Ray's book on uh-huh. Kansas City hauntings, by the time you hear this, will be out within a week. That's awesome. So early October. And what's it called? Kansas City hauntings. Kansas City hauntings. Yeah. All right. Well, you can check that out, Ashley. Awesome. That's all I got, man. Cool. That's it. All right. We're done. Well, are we doing any shout outs? I forgot. Okay. The, well, I that's all right. Don't worry about it. So, because um, I have one I have to do. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, so I know we don't have a list of shout outs, but I do need to do a shout out to Gavin and Sarah, who are two of our biggest fans. Okay. Actually, they're Renee's grandkids. But oh, yeah, yeah. I promised them that I would say their name on the show. Aww. So, uh, so this is from Troy. So, uh, glad you guys listen. They do love the show. They I really know. Do. I know they do. So, and yeah. Troy's heart so. grew three sizes that day. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, where can they find us, man? What? The, the show? The show. Oh, I'll be darn. Um, yeah. Well, Apple Podcasts, that's where I listen to most of my podcasts. But True. Actually, you find it just about anywhere that you listen to podcasts, including, you just sent me something new. Amazon Music. Amazon Music. Yep. We're on there now, and Spotify, and yep. I don't know, probably pretty much everywhere else. Pretty much everywhere. I don't know all of the different ones, because I always just use Wondery and, sure. you know, and Apple Podcasts. Those are the only ones I ever use, but uh, I know they're out there everywhere. But for those of you who are listening, especially on Apple, leave us a review. Yes, please. uh, Because it makes it easier for people to find the podcast. And you guys have been really great about that. They really have, because uh, we have uh, higher numbers of reviews than uh, shows that have been around a lot longer than ours. So we really appreciate it. So if you haven't done it yet, please do it. Uh, We'd really appreciate it. Share it with your friends, uh, just like that message that you had a little bit earlier they said they'd shared it around and we really appreciate that yes it's amazing so um guys thank you for everything and um you know getting us really through the pandemic Mm -hmm. um and we've we've had some interesting times throughout this year and i'm sure they're not over yet uh, but we've got a lot more shows coming for you and the last part of the year including a couple of special episodes uh, with um, you know our movie episodes of the, and our Halloween episode that we always do every year. So uh, thanks for everything, and uh, we will talk to you soon. And with that note, I just want to say until next time, goodbye, so long. And, and this episode ya. of the American Hogs Podcast was written by Troy Taylor. It was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. The show airs every other week, offering history, hauntings, folklore, legends, and the truth as we look into America's darkest corners. Check out their website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for show notes, more info about the episodes, and links to more 
from American Hauntings. Because American Hauntings isn't just a podcast. It's books, tours, events, choice, comedy albums, and more. <laughs> and our main website is AmericanHauntings.net. And if you want even more Do from an us, all-movie themed comedy you can be a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of you the show. You know, that's something else. You know what I what, didn't say? That, and I kept saying, you know, how much we appreciated everybody, you know, leaving us reviews and sticking by yeah. us during a pandemic and stuff. That's something that we should really say you know we've been doing a lot of bonus episodes and things and we've got some stuff coming out here in the fall we always send out new things uh but that's something that people we everybody stuck by us yeah during you know our all of our patreon people we tried awesome. to we tried to give back but during the pandemic when people were out of work and stuff people stuck with us and that was really and cool. we really appreciate that yeah and um it, it really has made a big difference um i hope that people have seen a change in the quality of the podcast yeah. because we've been able to get things going and um we've really anyway sorry i just i meant to say that earlier yeah. and i forgot no thank you so, so. much it really means a lot t-shirts discounts great stuff <laughs> in the mail and more thanks to our supporters as troy mentioned we've upgraded our equipment for the show and with continued help from you we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future take a minute check it out we think we'll like what you find at patreon.com slash american hauntings be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show suggestions reviews jokes or just want to tell us what you really think of us we're reachable via email on twitter instagram facebook and by carrier pigeon until next time goodbye uh, goodbye so long and see you, see you later. later all right